All right, so continuing through 1 Timothy um, chapter 3, and we're to this section on, on overseers and elders, and, and that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to, what is an overseer? What's an elder biblically? Not what have we made it to be, but what does the Bible say about it? And then I will also uh, tell you, this was another one. Like, is, evidently, it's a soapbox for me because by the time I was finished uh, writing all the notes and the corrections, and when you be mindful of it, it was about 15 pages, and I got it all the way back because I went back through. I'm like, okay, Lord, I want to check my spirit on this one, and so maybe this one needs to come back out. Um, and, and maybe this is, um, as Master Theologian Jared Baird says, you know, he can look at something like, and, and, and beat a dead horse, and then once a horse is dead, he'll just stare at it, and then he'll beat it again, and then after it's for sure dead, and he's, then he's just one more time going to go back and beat the dead horse. And so I'm trying to make sure that I'm not doing that either. However, I will say, I have an incredibly strong passion for these qualifications of an elders, because I just think it's so clear what pastors should and should not be and what we have a tendency to make it to be. So with that said, we're going to walk through this passage, me fully knowing that this absolutely puts the lens on me even as I'm preaching it, and it should. I should be accountable to all these qualifications so that even as I preach them, please understand I'm not preaching this as one who says, hey, I got this figured out, I'm doing this, but as me saying to you very honestly and truly and genuinely and humbly, if I'm not doing this, if I'm not meeting these qualifications, then I need to be held of account too. You need to come say, I'm not seeing this in you. Or I don't see this right now, but I've seen it before. Like, how do I come alongside? How do I walk with you through this? But also knowing that that's true of Andy. Also knowing that that's true of any elder that, that may arise within cross life and be established every single one of the elders the pastors the overseers every shepherd of the flock must meet these qualities so even as i preach it today i am hoping i'm not preaching hypocritically but as one who is simply saying these are the qualities and if i don't meet the qualities then i am absolutely disqualified absolutely chas and i were talking the other night and it's not easy being a pastor's wife either because she's alongside me for everything. She bears the weight that I don't even know she's bearing because I voice things to her. And so that's its own weight. That's its own task. And she even said, not in a malicious or bad way, she's like, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm always on. I feel like everybody's always watching us. And I said, they are. And I'm really sorry. And it is an incredible weight, not just for me, but for her, for Andy, for Alyssa, for whoever another elder may be, for his wife, for his family. We live constantly uh, in observation, and that's part of the calling, and it's hard. So I want you to be mindful that I should be meeting these qualities, as should, you'll notice later, my household. But I'm also going to ask that you be very prayerful for not only me, but for my wife, for my kids, because they, they bear that pressure, too, of the calling um, of the elders. And so um, it was a very hard but gently applied reminder to me and I so that's heavy you know so with that said I hope that as I preach this it's not my last sermon 
because I don't want to be disqualified. But hopefully I do preach it genuinely so that um, you know, know not only what I am striving for, but also what all of the elders at Crosslife are striving for and what should be expected of any pastor at any church who is called to lead God's church. The reason I always try to say it that way is, who knows how long Crosslife may exist? I never mean that as a scare. I just simply mean it as we want to be faithful in the moment that we've had. And I told Chas one day, I said, you know, if, what if I find out that the cross life is only to live for five years? But in that five years, everyone who gathered was strengthened and equipped to then scatter to other churches where they could enrich those churches and make those ministries stronger so that other saints could be brought along. Like, what if that's what God has so intended? Like, am I okay with that? And that wasn't me. That was God working within me on something saying, are you okay if I really do whatever I want to do with your ministry? And at the end of it, I was like, yes, like, I would be okay with that. Like, what if it's just for a season that we're all gathered together to get equipped so that we can scatter from this place so that His glory can be enriched in so many other contexts? Like, is that okay with me? In a hard way, yes. In a selfish way, I don't want, like, I know what I want. But I always want to preach in the capacity that we're always equipped so that we can always go out and we can always make much of Him, whether cross-life is a reality or not. So therefore, I'm not going to assume that we know everything um, about the qualifications for pastors and elders because we need to know. We need to know so that we can let others know, so that we can, wherever it is that God sends us, it may be that we have to come alongside pastors or who knows that He may not use us to plant other churches. And you might say, there's absolutely no way I'm ever going to do that. I never was either. It was never the design for me to be doing what I'm doing right here in my own uh, mindset. But you never know what God is going to do with you after a decade. And whenever he's going to say, you know what? I kind of just want you to open your living room right now and see what I do. So you need to know this. I need to know this. We need to know what scripture says about the qualifications of all elders, all pastors. Here's what 1 Timothy says. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit or pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Y'all pray with me one more time. Lord, your word is living and active, a two-edged sword that pierces between bow and marrow, soul and spirit. Lord, it is able to convict and able to reprove us and able to correct us and able to enlighten us. It is by your word that we know of Jesus Christ today. And it is through our faith in Jesus Christ that we even have the ability through your Holy Spirit to grasp the words that are in front of us. Lord, I pray that this right now is not a scholarly study but it is your saints intently trying to understand how much you care for your church and those who lead your church. I pray, Lord, 
that you guard us from Satan, who seeks one to devour, and who prowls around and, Lord, would be ready to cast accusations on other pastors that may come to our mind in a negative sense. Lord, I pray that, that you guard me from Satan and from my own self. Lord, that there be no pride in me as I walk through this, but Lord, that I am humbled again and again that you would call someone such as me, for you know who I was, Lord. Lord, but you, a holy God, choose and have, I'm sorry, have chosen to redeem a sinful people for your own glory. And in our weakness, you show your strength. Lord, I pray that as we open this word, we are reminded again, not of the pastors and the elders, although that's what we're seeing, but Lord, of the goodness of our God and of your glory. Lord, that's what we're called to live for. Before the very face of God, may we live humbly and holy for you. As a congregation, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, but Lord, also as pastors and elders who are called to lead the church. Lord, please stop my mouth whenever I begin to speak too much. Amen. Okay, so here we go. What is clear? Just going to start walking through this, okay? All right. What is clear? Number one, the Bible is very clear as to what kind of man God wants to lead his bride, his body, his church. Never forget the identity of the church is not just a bunch of people coming together, but the church is composed of those people who've made a profession of faith. They are the saints. We may not feel like saints. We may not always act like saints. But positionally in Christ, the church is the gathering of the saints. And God has been very clear about the men that He wants to lead to the gathering of the saints. We also see this structure all throughout the Old Testament. We see that God has appointed leaders. There is this mindset in our culture today, and it's been around forever, that sometimes we like to camp in, in Peter where it says that we are a priesthood of believers. And we all are. But of God's people, He does establish order. That even though the church is an organism, not an organization, there must still be order or it will die. So we are an, org I'm sorry, an organism. We are a living thing. We are a living church is being brought together. We are His temple, His bride, His body. And God cares about the health of that to the degree that He says, you can't just put anyone in charge. They must meet these qualities. So he's very clear. Number two, what is an overseer? Okay, because look, it says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. We don't talk like that here in Arkansas. We got pastors, right? In some churches, we have elders, but the term elder is, I'm going to scoot back just a little bit here. The term elder is even kind of foreign here in the South but it's not foreign in all the contexts of the churches. And then you get into, well, are they a ruling elder? Are they just elder-led or elder-ruled? And is this a preaching, teaching? I mean, they, they use the term quite a bit. Presbyterians use that term elders and elders who rule and ruling elders quite a bit. Or you'll hear elder board. So the term elder and overseer and pastor or shepherd, those are all interchangeable. They're all valid translations. Bishop appears in some translations as well. The original Greek word is episkopos, right? So you go to Walmart today and people are talking about church, and you're like, well, we talked about episkoposes today. And you just throw that out there. Okay, so for my note takers, that's E-P-I, 
S-K-I-P-O-S, episkopos. It's often translated as elder, bishop, shepherd, or I'm sorry, um, elder, bishop, overseer, and in America we use the term pastor. And pastor and shepherd are interchangeable terms as well. Now, if you think about each one of these, it does start to highlight like what the pastors are supposed to be doing, what the elders are supposed to be doing. Whatever church we go to, these are the biblical, this is the biblical identity of the overseer. I'm sorry. Here's our pathway. I just ask what is clear, what is an overseer, what does an overseer do, and what are the qualifications. So that's where we're starting to kind of move because the qualifications are very important, but we also need to know if they're even fulfilling the roles that they're doing. But, but listen to each one of these terms. Overseer refers to the function of giving oversight to the entire church. They are overseeing the church, right? The term elder refers to a stage of life, possession of experience, and status. So I was called to be an elder at Cross Life Russellville, oh, I guess maybe a decade ago. That does not seem right, but it has to be. Um, still in my 20s, and I really wrestled with, uh, barely my 20s, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold to that. I was still in my 20s, okay? But I really wrestled with, I can't be an elder. And whenever the pastor approached me, he, he kept saying, well, I think, you, I think you need to consider the qualifications. Like, I can't be an elder. That's for, I'm not old enough. There are wiser, older men. He said, age is never one of the things in the qualifications. He said, what matters is, do you know the word? Are you able to teach it? Are you above reproach? Are you self-controlled? Are you respectable? He's like, you're already doing the roles of an elder. People already come to you for leadership in the church. I think you just need to kind of get over yourself and just do it. And I'm like, okay. So I said, okay, I will agree to be an elder, like I, but you know I'm hesitant, but I'm just going to sit there and listen a whole lot because there are much older, wiser, more respectable men in that room. I am not good at holding my tongue. So the first meeting, I didn't sit very silently, but, but God had to walk me through what biblical eldership is and what it's not. But even whenever I hear that term elder, I think, oh, someone who's older, someone who has gray hair. You know, someone who's like more mature in life and had life experiences. And I think that's absolutely true. So God grew me into an elder so that I have gray hair. I prefer platinum and there's gray here now and I'm older in life. But that's what that term means is someone who has experienced, someone who is wise in how they have walked. It's a, it is a stage of life uh, that we tend to think of, but it's so much more whenever we think biblically. And then the term shepherd or pastor. This is a metaphor that I care very much about. It's a metaphor for personal care given to the members of the church. I do enjoy preaching, but I much more enjoy pastoring. But I will tell you, the preaching is the easy part. The pastoring is the hard part. Walking alongside day by day, caring, waking up at 3.30 with, with you or others on my mind, or whatever that, that capacity is, whether it's in a good way or a bad way. But the shepherd pastor, so, but they, they're the ones, they have that pastoral care. They care about the hearts and the souls. And so the shepherd, just like the shepherd would have a flock, that's that idea is that the elder, the overseer, the, the shepherd pastor, they're in the midst of the flock, right? They're not rolling from a hillside, but they're in the midst of the flock and they're walking with it, guiding it and leading it. So all these terms are interchangeable. And I honestly think that they need to be. Because once we get to the roles of and the duties of the overseer, 
then you will see that, that each one of those is applicable in many different ways. But in your Bible and throughout Scripture, if you see overseer, elder, or shepherd, they all refer one and the same to the, the, to the same role. Okay, if you look biblically and you, and you go through, you don't, except for really here in Titus, whenever it talks about elder overseer, that's singular. Whenever you look throughout Scripture, there's a plurality. Whenever you see elder, it's got an S on it, so it's elder. So he writes to the elders and the deacons or appoint the elders there. And so it's always in a plurality. Y'all, this is healthy. I think a plurality of elders is absolutely healthy. This means that there are multiple men who should function in the leadership of the church for God's glory and not their own. That's why we need a plurality. Whether that includes me or whether that means that I'm sitting there and there are biblically qualified men, there should be a plurality because I'll just tell you, Andy and I balance one another. I know me. I know that I can sit here and say, here's how we're going to go and here's how we're going to do it. I know my mindset and I lead in my, in, as a superintendent within more of that capacity. But whenever I'm pastoring the church and I'm, el- and I'm an elder in the church, that plurality is so incredibly healthy. Because also, you know what? Whenever I'm low, Andy's here and he pulls me up. And whenever I'm high and he's low, then we pull one another up. Whenever I have one perspective, he may affirm it or he may negate it. And then we have this healthy discussion. It's good to have a plurality of elders and not just have the one person who makes the one call according to his own will. And so you're going to see a plurality. If you want to, to, to note this, you're going to see a plurality, for example, in, in Acts 20.17, it refers to elders. In Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, it refers to elders, plural. In Titus, it refers to elders, plural. In Peter, it refers to elders, plural. You, you go through and you start finding the word elders or shepherds, and, and you will see that there's a plurality all throughout the New Testament. I think it's absolutely healthy. Does this mean then that other churches who don't have elders are wrong and in sin? No, it doesn't. Okay, but I want to walk with you through that. They may actually be functioning as elders. They just call it a pastoral staff. Okay, just because they don't say elders or overseers or shepherds or plurality doesn't mean that they're wrong. It's are they fulfilling the roles and the duties to which they've been called? And are they doing that with mutual respect for one another? What I mean by that is this, that whenever you have your elders come together, then there is what's called like the lead pastor or the lead elder, or uh, I like the term lead among equals, because I think it's a good reminder of how this, I believe, should function. The lead among equals is, is really just this idea that whenever all the elders come together, whether that's two or seven or 17, however big the church is, I feel like the bigger the church, the more elders you need for appropriate oversight. Whenever that comes together, all the elders have equal standing, equal qualification, equal expectation of the roles, but there is that one that they listen to, but not who directs all the order of the the church. Therefore, let's just say that there were five, uh, five elders at Cross Life. If four of them, uh, are, are, if we're discussing something and I say, well, here's the direction I feel like we should go, and four of them say, we don't feel that or we don't agree or we feel like we need time to pray, then I don't get to say, well, too bad, here's what we're doing. I get to say, okay, we, we need to discuss this and pray about it more, so y'all, let's walk through this and we discuss it. The same is true of Andy and I. If we do not have an, a very firm agreement or peace between us on something, we don't move on it. 
I don't get to just simply say, here's what I think we should do because I'm the, the lead pastor. I'm the one that everyone publicly, visibly sees. I, I have no extra authority in that. I'm just simply a lead among equals. So in that plurality, there is still order. And in that order, that kind of comes out as there's a lead pastor or a lead elder or there's a lead among equal. Whenever I speak, I know that there's probably a deference to my voice in that council of plurality because that's just part of my role. But it doesn't mean I get to dictate. It means there may be a deference, there may be an asking, there may be a questioning, but I don't get to dictate. What has happened in our American churches is we have set our churches up, not with this council of godly men, or this plurality of godly men, but more with an organizational structure where there's a CEO at the top and he dictates and determines all the matters of the church, and then there's just other staff. But we've elevated this one role of this one pastor to where he determines all the direction of the church. I think you just have to be careful. That's all I'm saying. And you have to be careful when you see it. Do I think it's sinful? No, because whenever they come together, if he respects their voice and their leadership and them as pastors, then that's healthy. Does that make sense? Like there's nothing wrong with that. Just because they use the word staff and not elder doesn't mean it's bad. It's how do they operate in conjunction with one another. Several years ago, my family was part of a church whose lead pastor left. And, and what happened was whenever that lead pastor left, the pastoral staff rose up. Like the children's pastor preached one week. The youth pastor preached another week. The executive pastor preached another week. The worship pastor preached another week. The children's pastor preached. The youth pastor preached. The executive pastor, the worship. And then they were on this really incredibly healthy. And I was loving it and I was growing. And then the church said, well, we need to call an interim pastor because we don't have a pastor right now. And I'm sitting there going, no, you have pastors. Just let them do it. Like, you already have pastors there. But we've kind of relegated the idea of pastor and those positions to stepping stones. Well, they're not a senior pastor yet. They may never be called to be a senior pastor, and they're absolutely obedient and fulfilling the high and holy calling they've been given because they're pastoring and shepherding and serving. How dare we relegate that to anything less? So there should be that mutual respect. And the church had it. It was going so well. And I'm not saying that it didn't go well. I'm stepping back from that to say there was a church that in that season, I think they got it. I think that they grasped it, even though they would never say elders. There was a spirit of eldership. I do truly believe, though, that a healthy church will produce more godly men who will become increasingly more qualified, if not already qualified, so that as God grows His church, He's growing His leaders, and those elders will arise from within. Okay, so what are the roles of the elders? Oh, by the way, whenever I say elders, I have no seminary degree. You should probably know that. One day I may. I may never get one. It's not a qualification. Why do I share that here is because there's great strength, and I, think a, and I think what we should see is that there should be lay elders. That means elders from within the congregation, not seminary trained, but godly men who love the Lord, who meet the qualifications. They're lay elders. They're not paid. They don't want to be paid. They want to come alongside. They want to help lead the church because they can't not lead the church because God's put it within them. He's given them that desire. So I want to be clear. I believe strongly in lay elders, I believe, and that's what I, I served as, um, and I think that that's healthy. Okay, what are the roles and duties of the overseer, elders, pastors? I can do this two ways. I can tell you, and then we can all flip there, or I can tell you, and then I can read the passage to you. 
I don't care. Which, which one do you want? One goes quicker than the other. Okay, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to tell you their, their duty, and I'm going to tell you the reference so you can write it down, and then I'm going to read it to you. Okay? All right. I'm trying to be expedient here. Okay, number one, they serve and labor for the church. This is what pastors, elders, and overseers should be doing. They serve and labor for the church. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. And as always, remember, my notes are fully available. Just shoot me a text. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So pastors, elders, overseers should be working for the church. They should be doing that very thing. Alistair Begg says that based on Ephesians 4, which we'll read in just a moment, that pastors are the first gift to the church to serve the church. The church is not to serve the pastors. The pastors were given to serve the church. And sometimes we get that wrong. Well, there's the pastor. We don't need to bother the pastor. Or, and that, I get that mindset, but it's incredibly dangerous whenever the pastor says, I can't do that or I don't want to do that. I've been called to do other things. You know what we were called and given for? To serve the church. They are not to be served, but are to serve. And this is why they were a gift to the church to serve. And so there's a book by Alistair Begg, and he really hones in on that. And that was so refreshing to read. Number two, they will teach the word in some capacity, whether through preaching, counseling, men's, Sunday school. We're going to see here in just a moment that they're able to teach, and teaching is different than preaching. They don't have to be able to preach, though they need to be ready for it, but they need to be able to teach. And so, so that might be um, in the capacity of counseling someone. They're able to take that word and they're able to counsel and give them the right word at the right time and, and communicate it. They're able to lead a Sunday school class clearly and effectively teaching the word. But not all elders are meant to preach, but they all must be able to teach in some capacity. It doesn't even mean that they're all actively involved in teaching at that moment, but they are able to do it in season and out of season. Number three, I'm sorry, um, the, the verse for that was 1 Timothy 3, 2. Therefore, an overseer must be dot, 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 able to teach. Number three, they hold the word as true, and they remind us of it and instruct others in it. That's in Titus 1, 9. He, the overseer, elder, pastor, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the elder must not only know the word, but they must hold to the word, they must cling to it, and then they need to be able to give instruction whenever it's time. Number four, they all, this is, this is an important distinction, they all, all the elders, they all lead the church and make decisions for the church, but some preach. I just want to clarify that distinction. We get this in 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so there is a distinction that as you push into elders, you'll see that there seem to be some preaching elders, uh, or at least in some of these contexts of these churches, and then those who never preached, but man, they were great leaders for the church and they made decisions for the church. So they all lead the church and make decisions for it, but some preach. Next one, they serve as examples. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
Your elders, the pastors and overseers, must be worthy examples. They must be those that you can look at and say, that's what genuine, authentic faith looks like. I want to strive to live in that way. Next one. They, this is important for me, they care for your souls. And, this is a hard one, bear the ultimate responsibility for the church. That will keep you up at night. It will. Anyone who's saying, I feel like I should be an elder or I want to start considering eldership, you need to know that they care for your souls and that they bear the ultimate responsibility for the church. Mismanagement of the church is not a business decision. I believe it is a sin because it is God's church and there's been that mismanagement of it. So you want to consider that. But these men who are called to do this will give an account for your soul and bear responsibility for the church. We get this in Hebrews 13, 7, 17. Sorry, Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so as we look at our churches and at Cross Life, is this what you see in your elders? When we look at a pastoral staff at any other church, is this, what we see in, is this what we see those men doing? Are they fulfilling the role? If so, good. Forget what they're called. Are they fulfilling the roles? Good. That's what they're doing. We tend to fall in, myself included, absolutely. We fall, tend to fall in to critiquing and grading rather than celebrating and encouraging them. And we need to do that more. I don't mean that in a self-serving way, and I absolutely mean it in a self-serving way. Okay, but I have pastors that I reach out to just to check on because they, I know that they, I know what they face. I know the burden that's on them. And I just want to make sure that someone is saying, how are you doing? You have those pastors who are not here, but are elsewhere. And if you're not checking on them and encouraging them, then please do. You are probably doing a greater work than you will ever know. At the same time, you need to be running this through the lens of, are these men fulfilling their role? And if they are, then you can sit under that leadership. And if they're not, then you don't want to sit under that leadership. May in your elders you see men who are humbly laboring for the church, teaching and or preaching, leading with Christ-likeness, serving as examples of the faith, and genuinely caring for the souls of the congregation. That's what you should expect of your elders, wherever it is He leads us. I do want you to turn to Ephesians 4, and then we're going to get into these qualifications. I just want you to understand that Scripture is so incredibly clear about who God wants to lead His churches. We've made it a matter of skill and experience and degrees. And we forget the roles and the qualifications. So one last thing. God has appointed elders to lead His church, His body, His bride. This is His design. And take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. Therefore it says, when He, this is talking about Jesus, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended to the lower regions of the earth? We're not going to cover that one right now, okay, y'all? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might all fulfill all things. That's one of those mysterious verses. What does it mean? Well, not our sermon right now, okay? This one is, verse 11, He, Jesus, 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Remember, there's our word shepherds. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, what do we see? That when Christ in His triumphal procession to the throne, He was giving gifts to men. And we see those as the spiritual gifts that allow us to all serve. But then He gave specifically these five different roles. And some would say that these aren't five different roles, that they're all one role. I think that there are five different roles here. That's like just an understanding of the Scripture. So let's look at that. Let's push into this and walk through very quickly. And then we're going to see what men are qualified. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. You know what we see? They are given by God. To do what? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip them. Not to entertain them. Not to make them feel comfortable. But to equip them. To give them what they need. Why? So that they can do the work of ministry. You one day should be so equipped that in whatever capacity, whatever timeline, you're actually doing ministry. Now, each of us have different ministries. doesn't mean you're doing children's. doesn't mean you're doing youth. doesn't mean you're serving as an elder. It means that whatever the ministry is that God has called you to, you have been equipped by the Word, and you can do that because the elders are faithfully teaching and equipping you. To what end? Like how, how else are we, or what else are we supposed to be doing with this? Not only equipping, but we're supposed to be, look at this, for the building up of the body of Christ. We are to be contributing to the building up of the body of Christ. And for how long should we do this? Look at the verse again. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know what that tells me? It doesn't stop. But we do this. We equip so that everybody is ready to do ministry in whatever capacity that is until we are all um, built up in the body of Christ. And then we keep doing that until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Like that's what we're supposed to do. That's why God gave us to the church. God gave the leaders of the church to equip His church to build up His saints and to bring them to maturity so that we may be all full in Christ. This is His gift. It's His design. It's His method. It's His goodness. That godly, biblically qualified men would lead Christ's church to know Him, to treasure Him, and to be ready to make Him known to others. Like, that's why I will gather on a Sunday. That's, I also don't tell jokes and stories because the other side of it is I don't know how to. I'm not a good storyteller. I'm not a good joke teller. But I just want you to have the Word because it's going to equip you so much more than I ever could. So, y'all, this is... As we move into these qualifications, I, I hope you hear, this is not just a role of leadership. This is a humbling, it is a high, and it is a holy calling that should humble the qualified men. If you have somebody who goes, I checked the box, I checked the box, I checked the box, and they're just going through and they're like, yeah, I mean, I meet all the qualifications, so why can't I be an elder? I think that you hear the answer in the question. You don't want somebody who's checking the box. What you want is somebody that everybody's actually watching and the people are saying, why aren't they an elder? That makes sense that they're an elder. It's easy to establish yourself. Maybe it's harder to be qualified. 
So what I want us to do is cross life. My philosophy is that elders arise from within. We don't hire an elder. We don't. We may have to hire a pastor at some point, not lead pastor. That didn't, I mean, that sounded kind of scary. But you know, like, but like, let's just. That, I have no problem with that. But I think that the elders, the plurality, should rise up from within. That we're always looking around and going as we hear these qualifications, we're going, why isn't that person an elder? But I'm also not going to actively seek out and just be like, you know what, Trent, you should be an elder. Like, I, I'm look, you should definitely do it. That's not my role. My role is to sit there and watch, and as I have someone who, I, who says, yeah, I, I, I think I do want to be an elder. I, I, I'm considering this. Then at that point, we start giving them more opportunities so that others can see that opportunity. They need time to, for leadership. They need time to practice their teaching. Now, you do also see in Scripture where Paul writes to him and says, appoint elders in every town. That seemed to be some sort of, he was an, uh, an apostolic delegate. He was sent for that purpose. I also think that in church planting and in young churches, you do have to kind of appoint kind of a core leadership of plurality. But at that point, you start seeing that develop more and more, and that's healthy. Okay, back off that. Okay, that's the soapbox. I'll step back off. Sorry. What are the qualifications? Who are these men? Are they qualified? Each one of these could be a sermon in and of itself, and you know I could do that, but I'm not going to. We're going to keep moving. Okay, the men who are qualified to do this according to Scripture. If anyone, I'm back in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 now. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This to me is the absolute first quality. Above reproach is not. To me, does he desire it? That's the first quality. Because if we reckon that with all of other Scripture, God will call him to do that. God will put a desire. God will put a yearning within him to do that task. And he will look for opportunities to make himself more uh, available to the church, more opportunity to serve. He will be fulfilling. He might not even know exactly what he's doing, but he is rising up and he is serving and he is saying, hey, what can I do right now? Or I'm going to be right here. Like he's, There's this burning desire. He desires that. If anyone aspires to, another way that they phrase it, if anyone sets his heart on doing this task. That's another great translation. But his heart is set upon him because God is calling him. God has said, this is something I'm calling you to. And so there's just kind of this awakening. There's this desire that he might not even know. Now, what I do love is where it says noble task, I read that it's actually better translated, good work. Anyone who sets his heart upon this or aspires to the office of overseer desires a good work, which automatically reminds me of Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is one of the good works that may be there before you, man. It might not be there now. But 10 years from now, as you grow in the faith and as you mature, all of a sudden you look around and you realize that everybody else is watching you because you are leading as God wants you to and you're serving as an elder in the church. There was a time whenever I thought there's no way I'd ever be qualified for that. Look at this. It says, therefore, so here goes the list. An overseer must be above reproach. So in other words, I'm just going to clarify Jesus' qualification. There should be nothing in the elder's life that someone could, quote, lay hold of in a negative regard. There should be nothing that should be in his life that anyone could lay hold of and make his faith and his authenticity questionable. 
I will meddle here, okay? So I'm going to meddle because I think pastors need this reminder because so many pastors listen to my podcast anyway. But, but make sure you hear the heart of this. J.C. Ryle gives advice for all of us, but I think most definitely for elders if we want to be above reproach. Do nothing that you would not like God to see. Say nothing that you would not like God to hear. Write nothing that you would not like God to read. Go no place where you would not like God to find you. Read no book of which you would not like God to say, show it to me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like to have God say, what are you doing? There goes like many of the books, many of the shows. What's left? Looking at trees and reading the Bible, right? Don't even talk to people. Like you just like, but, but the heart is, yeah, we should must absolutely really check the entertainment and the media that we take in, the words that come out of our mouth. We cannot comfortably toy around with those things that dishonor the Lord, especially as elders. There's no safe place in which we can say what we want, for He hears everything. There's no hidden place in which we can entertain what we want, for He sees everything. What others do see, elders are accountable for. And what others do not see, elders are still accountable for. They must be above reproach in private and in public. It is for this reason, in case any of you have ever wondered why, I'm, why I draw such a hard line on this, it is for this reason that I don't cuss, nor do I think it's acceptable for an elder or a pastor to ever cuss, even in joking. I can't find any biblical allowance for it at any point because we're all called to account for our words and we will be accountable. Nor do I find the freedom to read anything I want or to watch anything I want not only because it can bring disrepute, but there may be temptation there that I might not be able to bear or that others, if they hear that I read it or that I watch it, they might go, but I thought you were a pastor. That's what it means to live above reproach. It means that your life is in constant guard. Y'all, God does not need the pastors and the elders and the overseers to be culturally relevant. He doesn't need us to be. What He wants us to be is to guard the deposit that we've been given and to live holy and acceptable lives because Jesus Christ has shed His blood for us and for His church. Therefore, we put to death in the flesh what Christ has already forgiven us on the cross. The elders live a life above reproach so that there's no question of the genuineness of their faith. Before God and man, elders are above reproach. So I would say... Is there anything, these, these don't all have these long explanations, but is there anything in his life that he practices in private or in public that the enemy could lay hold of and disqualify him? Therefore, he must have integrity, be mature, and have solid character. Above reproach. The husband of one wife. Okay, so this one is tricky because scholars and theologians land on opposite aisles. Um, Ends. They're on opposite ends of this. I believe that the most literal translation is the husband of one wife. Okay? The husband of one wife or a one woman man. Um, that's a good and acceptable and literal translation as close as we can get it. And this refers to the husband's devotion to his wife. Is his affection and his heart set upon her and her alone? In this present moment is where I'm going to deal with right now, and then I'll address the other. But in this present moment, is, it, is his affection and his heart set upon her and her alone, both in public and in private? 
Is she the sole woman to whom he is absolutely devoted? He must be a one-woman man physically and spiritually and emotionally. Therefore, some have taken different camps on this. Some will say, and they hold it very strongly, that if a man has been divorced, he is absolutely disqualified from being an elder or a pastor. There's no way at any point that with divorce present, they can be qualified. Another camp holds very firmly to they can if it was in the past and meet certain criteria. And if they were not a Christian before, then they should still be able to be qualified now that they are Christian, assuming the fact that they have a strong, healthy marriage right now. I land, let me tell you this, ask me again in five years and we'll see where, which camp I'm in. But as in most things, I see the validity in both. And I think that there is something we got to consider in both of those regards. So please hear me because I think this matters for the future elders of Cross Life and, and me serving as an elder and a pastor. For me, I believe that if a man has been divorced, then there should be a hard, prayerful pause in consideration. And I'll walk you through that. During that pause, we're looking at the nature of the divorce that is being considered. I don't think that the presence of divorce then is the absolute disqualifier of a pastor or an elder. So with that in mind, I ask the question, what were the conditions of that divorce? Was it a biblical divorce? What I mean by biblical divorce of abuse, abandonment, adultery, in which he actually was not at fault at all. If he remarried, how does that divorce affect their marriage? These are things that I would be thinking through. If he remarried, how does that divorce then affect the marriage now? And to whom is he remarried? Was there a biblical divorce there or was there not? Was there repentance there or was there not? Also, you just need to know remarriage is not a sin. There are criteria for remarriage. That's okay. If it's biblical. I also have to ask, how will the community consider the above reproach aspect with a pastor who has been divorced? All of this is not always just a clear-cut black and white thing. I think there are many considerations that go into this. Right now, my position on this topic is that his present marriage is of utmost importance and that his past marriage is open to a whole lot of consideration and discussion. That's where I land on it. I learned from a pastor for many years who preached Christ crucified, who treasured Him above all else. His love and devotion for His wife was unquestionable. His theology was deep and sound, and decades ago, while a young preacher, his wife left him after she had had affairs. She left him because she didn't want to be a pastor's wife. And so this pastor was going to resign his position because he felt like by that... well. He felt that because of the perception of the divorce that he would no longer be qualified. So I just I made this note. I said, was he disqualified? And I said, I don't believe so. I believe he fulfilled his ministry to Jesus Christ. I feel like he was qualified knowing all those things and knowing his heart and knowing what led to it. That pastor was Brother Bill, who I've referenced many, many times over and over again throughout my sermons. He is like a grandfather in the faith to me. And I believe that he is one who had divorce present in his past, but who was not disqualified for ministry. But then you also got to ask questions. If you allow one divorce and under those criteria and considerations, then what does that look like for the next situation? I think that you have to approach each one humbly and ask, is this a one woman man who deeply and affectionately loves this one woman right here that God has given him to be his helpmate? And then we consider all these other aspects. So that's where I land. Beats me.
you know, that's basically what it comes down to is I think it's worthy of consideration. I just think we need to be careful whenever, I must be careful that whenever men much wiser and smarter than me had divided camp so much, I'll just want to be very mindful that maybe there's something I'm missing. But I think in this, there is a great strength in both. Understanding the reality and the consequences of the divorce, but also taking into mind the consequences of that divorce and how they inform the present right now and the life that he's living right now. Because what if there were no divorce and yet he lived such a licentious, unloving lifestyle, completely disqualified also? Scripture goes on. I'm sorry, let me, let me just tie A plain reading of it simply means he's a one-woman man. There should be no doubt, even from his wife, that his heart is set upon one woman, her. He must be sober-minded. This just means that he thinks clearly and intently through whatever task is before him. One commentator says he must have a serious attitude and be in earnest about his work. This does not mean that he has no sense of humor or that he's always solemn and somber. Rather, it suggests that he knows the value of things and does not cheapen the ministry or the gospel message by foolish behavior. I think it's great to have a pastor who can tell jokes. I like to laugh a lot. I like goofiness. My, wife, uh, my family tells me all the time, if they really knew what Mr. Massengeller with their pastor was like, you know, because I can be very foolish. But you take the things, you take the serious things seriously, you take the foolish things foolish. I love to laugh. So it doesn't mean that by being sober-minded, he has no sense of humor. It just means he understands the seriousness of situations. He's self-controlled. He's not shaken by circumstances. He seems to compose himself regardless of whatever it is that's placed before him. He is able to control and maintain himself mentally, emotionally, and physically in that moment. He's respectable. Look at this one. The life that he lives is one that is easy to be respected, is how I translate it. It's easy to respect that person by those near to him and by those who, who are far from him. You ever had that conversation with someone? You're like, I like that person. Someone's like, well, if you really knew him like I did, you wouldn't. You know, you hear that in the church too. You hear it about pastors too. There's a problem there. And it's not always a pastor. Sometimes it's a congregate. Sometimes it is the pastor. But they are easy to be respected by those near and by those far. Hospitable. I think that this one's actually a pretty important one. I know it's just there in line with them, but the elder and his wife should be hospitable. It's got to be uh, an aspect of who they are. So how do we check that? I would say how open is their house and their life to newcomers and to outsiders and to the church? Like how open are they? How hospitable are they? Now, hospitality is also its own gift. And I don't have it. That's why whenever Anna says, hey, for the fellowship meal, I say, no, mm -mm, keep going. Like, I'm just not a hus I, I want to be like hospitable, but I don't have the gift of hospitality. In other words, are they kind and are they open to strangers, to the church? Are they welcoming? Are they going out of their way to make, um, make themselves available? I would say this, be careful of an elder whose home is closed and whose lives are limited. Part of my pastoral philosophy that I think all the elders should hold to here at Cross Life is that the pastor should know his people and the people should know the pastor. There is no limit to the life of the pastor or to their homes. Thank you. Also, that they are able to teach. This distinguishes the elder from the deacon. It says, if you can, or I'm sorry, it says, my notes, if you compare the qualifications for the deacons and for the elders, able to teach is the distinguishing mark. Deacons don't need to be able to teach 
but elders must be able to teach. It's exclusive to the elder, to the pastor, to the overseer. Therefore, we must be able to teach. Okay, he cannot simply know the word. He must actually able, be, able, be able to teach it. Have you ever met someone who knows something, but they can't teach it to anybody? It's good for them. It's hard to listen to, right? I, being a teacher, have met plenty of people like that. They love math, but they can't teach it. They love science, but they can't teach it. It's not only what the elder knows, it's that they're able to teach. Whether they are preaching, Sunday school, men's, I know I've already covered this, but I just want you to hear it all in context. Strong biblical counseling to others, writing in-depth and with conviction. How Are they able to take God's Word and teach it to others so that it's actually applicable and understandable? Because if we get up here, we cannot equip if we're not making it applicable and understandable. If you don't understand what the Word says, then you can't actually live out the Word. Okay, so I'm going to keep going. This then should point us to the secret life of the elder. Hear me on this. If his private quiet time is shallow and limited, his teaching will be shallow and weak as well, and you will hear it. At the same time, elders, because of the task and honor of their calling, should know the word and seek to know it increasingly more. Only when they're able to actually, only when they know it are they actually able to teach it. If he doesn't have the desire to study it, he does not have the ability to teach it. That's something you want to watch for. Do the elders know the Word? Do they delight in the Word? Are they pushing into the Word? And there will be seasons where I'm not even in the Word as much as I want to be. I'm not saying like they're always on and they're always perfect. I'm just saying that they must be in the Word and their desire is for the Word. But they will also go through seasons because they're human. It's just going to happen. I would also put a caution. If a man is in a shallow season of study, he should not seek to be an elder yet because that season may not be over soon enough. Right? I go through seasons where I feel like I'm in a drought, where I feel like I'm in a valley. I'm doing that as an elder and as a pastor. If I'm wanting to, to qualify or to be recognized as an elder and I know I'm in that season, then I think a loving thing that I should do at that moment is say to, the, to whoever's leading me through that process, I still desire this, but I'm in a season right now and it might take me a little bit longer, so don't fast track me. Let me get out of this season. Okay, not a drunkard. By the way, this does not say that he cannot have a drink, but that he cannot be a drunkard. He cannot drink to excess. This does point us to moderation. However, comma, as my grandfather would say. He always made sure to articulate the punctuation on that one. Doesn't say that he can drink. However, comma, this needs to be strongly balanced with the elder being above reproach and well thought of by outsiders. What would others think? Not just people who know him, but others who do not know him, well thought of by outsiders, is the last qualifier that we're going to get to. What will others think of this action? And I'm just telling you that matters so much more than you and I want it to. We tend to think, I don't care what other people think. The Bible says that you should care about your reputation. You should care what others think about you. You should have a good name and good repute above others as Christians, not just as elders. We should care what others think. We are representatives of Christ, not of ourselves anymore. Our reputation most definitely, most biblically matters, especially for elders and pastors. What do others think of them and what does the church think of them? The pastor's freedom is not what at stake, is what it's stake. It's God's glory that's at stake. He gets to live and he, gets, he is called to live out Christ's glory so that others can look at it and see that sort of faith. He cannot let his freedom lead others to sin. How does his freedom affect others? He, does, he cannot be a drunkard. I don't have a problem with moderation. I don't have a problem with someone 
drinking in that way. But I think that we need to consider what do others perceive in that, whether within the church or outside of the church, but he absolutely cannot be a drunkard. Keep in mind the society he's living in also. Okay, he also is not violent but gentle. Y'all, the elder must be gentle, must be gentle, must be gentle, and not violent. Violent in words, violent in attitude, violent physically, but he must be gentle. This does not mean he's a pushover. It just means he's not a fighter and a brawler. Look at Christ, who could call down every angel and stop every aspect of the passion and crucifixion, and yet walked into their hands and gave himself freely. Because he trusted the Lord. We are called to be gentle, not quarrelsome. He does not seek to fight, even over words. He seeks and strives for unity. You and I as Christians tend to be known more for what we are against rather than what we are for. Think through that real quick. We tend to be known for what we're against rather than what we're for. That means something is wrong with our vocabulary and our message. Pastors too. Pastors do not need to be quarrelsome. Too many pastors are fighting about too many inconsequential things. Rather, there should be a striving for unity around the gospel. That is the heart of our fifth Sundays, just so you know. The heart of it is to show that there is a much bigger church and there is unity for the gospel that is so much bigger than cross life. C.H. Spurgeon told his students, so here's what elders should keep in mind, don't go about the world with your fist doubled up for fighting, carrying a theological revolver in the leg of your trousers. There's a lot of pastors and a lot of Christians like that. They are the theological police. They are the doctrinal control panel right here. He says, don't, don't go out ready for a fight. May we be known for the gospel and not correcting everything that we disagree with. This goes back to his gentleness and patience. He's not a lover of money. Scripture teaches the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all evil. In the gospel, Jesus warns us against the same thing. The elder cannot be greedy or driven by financial gain. At the same time, here's your balance. It's also balanced out later in this letter that in Timothy that there is instruction to the church that there is supposed to be compensation for the preaching elders. His compensation, though, cannot be what he loves more than fulfilling the ministry to which he's been called. That's the idea there. He's not greedy. He's not desiring the money. What he's desiring is to fulfill the ministry. And then as a result of that, the church compensates in that way. I'm not going to preach that sermon. Andy's going to preach that one. Okay? Because that one, I just, I was like, God, I can't do that one. Like, that one's really awkward for me. I'm good with this one because I want to make sure that we have a right understanding. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This is a component that I think that we can pass by too quickly. The quick understanding, the easy one is this. If he can't manage his household, how can he manage the church? It's a rhetorical question. He can't. If he can't manage the small family, he can't manage the larger family of the saints. So there's a shift, though, from his personal life to his family life. Is he leading a godly household and family? That's what you want to ask. It's not that they're perfect, but they do exemplify genuine faith and order. We hear that there. And I would ask this, how is he leading his household? Is it with dignity? Are his children submissive? This points a whole lot to his character too. Does he lead in private like he leads in public? Does he love in private like he loves in public? Is he the same man? Is he the same father? Does he lead with dignity and integrity regardless of the audience is what I want to know. And are his children submissive because of their father's love and leadership or because of their father's wrath? There's a whole lot to all of that, right? 
Those are things that we've got to think through whenever we're considering elders. And whenever you're looking at me, you should be looking at the way that I father. You should be looking at the way that I love my wife. You should be looking at my character traits and my qualifications, my personality. Like my life has to be absolutely completely open to you because you always have to be checking, am I qualified or disqualified as an elder? You have to be. It's the accountability of the church and of brothers and sisters in Christ. And if I'm not living these and I believe that I am and you let me continue in error, then you're not loving me either. It's a, it's a heavy thing. But you know, parents, just so you know, your children can be silent without being submissive, just like they can be loud but submissive. There is a heart matter there. Some of us are just naturally quiet people. We're happy being quiet. Some are just naturally loud people, and it doesn't reveal the condition of their heart. It's how they respond to the authority of mom and dad, but especially of the father. But you also need to know the reason this matters too for me is because hypocrisy begins in the home and it can corrupt a young heart because kids are going to see better behind closed doors what nobody sees out in public. So we have to be watching. We've got to consider these things. And the one who wants to be an elder welcomes it. The truth of it is they welcome it because their their heart is to be right before God. When it refers to this household too, Y'all, even though it doesn't say wife, we need to look at the whole household and we need to look at the wife. You must consider the wife because that is part of the household. Questions that I think that we genuinely need to ask. How is his wife? Is she submissive to his authority? Is she living a godly life? Is she exhibiting genuine faith? Is she even a believer? Is she faithful? Is she active and involved in the needs and the ministry of the church? Will she be resentful of his service to the church? And it's all because of this. Because of the wife's influence in her husband's life and because of the biblical model of marriage and because of the fruit of the Spirit that should be exhibited by her, the church must also look to the elder's wife to see if he is qualified. I know you have never walked or been a part of a church or known anyone who's part of a church where the pastor or the deacon's wives may harbor bitterness and unforgiveness, who do not attend church, who do not serve, who gossip and slander even in, even in their safe places, who seem negative or disillusioned, who seem apathetic. You surely have not been in any of those churches. Y'all, we have. The wife, I do believe, in considering the household, the wife can and should disqualify his ministry at least for a season. It's part of managing the household. You must look at the wife because as he leads his wife, these other things should be falling in line. Okay, it goes, goes quicker from here. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation. That condemnation of the devil is, in other words, he's fallen for the trap that, that Satan set for him. That's all it means. But if you take a recent convert who loves the Lord, y'all remember, whenever you got saved or whenever you made that decision, however you want to phrase that, whenever that moment happened, oh, you, nobody was going to stop you. I mean, you were going to go out. You were going to, you were going to take Christ to the nations, if, even, if, even if you didn't have a boat right? You were going to swim the ocean. You were going to go proclaim it. You were going to do that. And now we see here today, we're like, I'm just trying to hold on, right? Whenever we're in those moments, we must protect our younger brothers and sisters in the faith from the pride that could creep in if we put them in leadership too quickly. That's all it's saying, because there is no room for pride in the pulpit. They're, they cannot be prideful. Pride is what God absolutely hates. And whenever we get down to it, at the root of all of our sins is pride and unbelief. So we want to protect them. 
do not lay hands or put a new convert in place. And he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Here's what I, I wrote. This is a vital qualification. It's not only how the church perceives the pastor or elder to be, but how the rest of the world perceives him. What does the community say of him? What is his reputation in the city, in the schools, and with others he meets? If outsiders do not have a good opinion of him, he is disqualified. Because it's right there. Got to have good reputation. All right, in conclusion, Matthew Henry says of all of this, what piety, what prudence, what zeal, what courage, what faithfulness, what watchfulness are over ourselves, our lust, appetites, passions over those who are under our charge. I say what holy watchfulness is necessary in this work. Let those bless God and be thankful whom the Lord has enabled and counted faithful, putting them into the ministry. If God is pleased to make any in some degree able and faithful, let him have the praise and the glory of it. For the encouragement of all faithful ministers, we have Christ's gracious word of promise. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And if he be with us, he will fit us for the work in some measure, will carry us through the difficulties of it with comfort, graciously pardon our imperfections, and reward our faithfulness with a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Because you read all those, and men, and, and wives, if you're reading that and you're hearing it, and you're like, who could do that? It's what Paul says. Who is able to do this? Who is worthy to be able to do this? He whom God has called, He will equip. And we, those who have been called, can rejoice in this, that He will carry us through difficulties with comfort, that He will pardon our imperfections, and He will reward our faithfulness with a crown of glory. That is Matthew Henry. Here's mine. And then we'll pray. Remember too. You're not going to see this in the Bible. This is just me to you. Remember, too, that these elders, overseers, and pastors are but men as well. And it is a weighty task to care for the souls of so many. It is a joyful task and an honorable calling, but it is also laid on men who grow weary, can grow lonely, can grow disheartened, and can grow insecure, and who are always under the watchful eye and the attack of Satan who seeks one to devour. And all of this under the watchful eye, too, of the church and the world. The men who serve in this capacity do it because we've been loved by Christ and because we love Christ and His church. We do this because we've been called to do it. We do it because we desire to be faithful, but we are but dust, and He, God, knows our frame. Therefore, pray for your elders and the pastors that you know. And that's how we're going to leave that. What do I want you to reflect on and what do I want you to pray about Pray for me. If you're not, I need you to. Y'all pray for me. Pray for my family. Pray for Andy. Pray for his family. Pray that there are other men in this church who are qualified and who are ready to step into that role and to endure the ministry. But also, I want you to think about those pastors that you've had before. Consider their life. That they were examples for you. And consider that no one also may be just sending that encouraging word that they so desperately need in a drought or a dry season. Love serving you. Humble by the fact that God would allow me to do this, as I know Andy is as well, and as I know other men who rise up to this occasion. But we must all be qualified, and it can't be because you like us. It has to be, and it can't be because we're willing, and it can't be because we have a master's of divinity. It has to be because we are biblically qualified and we're fulfilling the roles that we have been called to. Let's pray. Lord God.
thank you for the pastors who have so graciously and so patiently poured into me. And Lord, forgive me for my critique of them. Forgive me for my impatience. Forgive me for my cynicism. Forgive me for my selfishness. Lord, I pray that today that the gospel that they preach and have preached to others has such a rich fullness to them today. I pray that the banqueting feast that you have prepared for us eternally is something that they are able to feast in today. I pray that they not only know your word, but Lord, that they are so keenly aware of your presence today that they just know that their God is with them and delights in them because Lord, they need it. Lord, for those faithful men that have poured into me, and I probably didn't pour back into them. Lord, for everything I didn't know about them, Lord, I trust you because you are faithful. And Lord, I pray that you bless them. And Lord, I pray that you give me the recall this week to reach out with an encouraging word to them so that they know that their ministry was not in vain and that the weight of ministry on their family was not in vain. But Lord, thank you for calling those faithful men who love you more than themselves and they love your church and are willing to serve. Lord, we love you and we're thankful for you. Amen.